Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to Solutions Watch. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. It is November of 2023. And this week on the D program, I have a very special uh, program for you. It is going to be not one, but two guests with whom you will already be very familiar because they have been on the Corbett Report many, many times before. And of course, from their work, which you have studiously studied in the recent past, I'm sure. For example, of course, you will remember Keith Knight as the editor slash organizer of the Voluntarist Handbook, which I discussed with him in the not-so-distant past. And you will remember Larkin Rose from maybe The Most Dangerous Superstition or many of his other works, or the Jones Plantation Film at jonesplantationfilm.com, which, again, I discussed with him in the very recent past. And I'm sure you've seen Jones Plantation film and bought the all-access pass so you get the film and the director's commentary, but have you got a gift card to help enlighten those people in your uh, in your orbit who might need that information? Well, you can do so at jonesplantationfilm.com, and we'll have more details about that towards the end of this conversation. But first, let's, let's bring them on, and let's bring them on in alphabetical order for the, uh, the very anal-retentive uh, people in the audience. Uh, Keith, Keith Knight. Good to have you on. Thanks for coming. James, thank you so much for having me, brother. Larkin Rose, good to have you here again. Great to be here again. All right, guys. So what are we doing here? Why on earth would this dream team of dastardly anarchists get together other than to discuss the one solution that actually matters, the one real solution to everything, as... Ernest Hancock of freedomsphoenix.com, and I hope you're listening to declare your independence on a regular basis, as he likes to say, freedom's the answer. What's the question? And I very much agree with that sentiment. I think that freedom is the answer. And it's not a a magical cure-all for everything, but it is the only moral way forward. And I think it really is an answer for a lot of the quandaries that we have. But hey, a lot of people out there haven't quite cottoned on to that yet, shall we say, and I get feedback on this subject all the time. So, today, Larkin and Keith and myself, we are going to try to tackle some of these questions and see what we can come up with from a freedom-oriented perspective. Guys, are you ready? Ready. Let's do it. All right, uh, let's tee it up with a, a question that I'm sure you have heard a million times exactly as I have. Um, we'll take this particular instantiation of the question that, from an email I received from Tony, who wrote, uh, It's not hard for me to imagine, in an anarchist society, how common goods like roads would still function. There are many people that need and use them. But how would things of a more abstract or moral nature, nature that people don't have a personal connection to work? Here's a couple of examples. Who will make sure that a lonely, poor old lady will have food and shelter and her physical needs met? How will the protection of animals be secured? I'm thinking primarily of pets and animals in captivity. How can we make sure that children in socially challenged families are taken care of? I'm in no way implying that the statist scheme is handling any of these in a satisfactory way. I just haven't heard any good arguments for how things like this would be handled by the market. All right, a fair and valid question that many, many, many people have when they first start thinking about these sorts of things. As I say, you've heard this question a million times in a million different flavors. So I'll leave it open, Keith and or Larkin. What do you say about this? One of the ways to uh, 
productively analyze something like this is say, well, what happens to ensure or guarantee that these people are taken care of? Well, the first thing to note is that there are no guarantees in life. There are only costs, benefits, and a number of trade-offs you can give. So the question is, we're going to have children, pets, and the elderly in any society, anyone who is in a vulnerable situation. The question then is, what sort of society should we have? One based on social cooperation, freedom, and voluntary exchanges where people can actually invest and create a wealthier society than you otherwise would have, having a state coercively constantly intervening in these voluntary exchanges? Or would you rather those people exist in a society where there is a monopoly on violence, where you're constantly subject to the whims of rulers who have the ability to arbitrarily tell you, you know what, we're not able to trade with 1.2 billion people. As one of uh, the more popular candidates, Ramaswamy, today says, declare our independence from China. That is a much more vulnerable situation for someone who is poor to say, oh, I, I had a 1.2 billion potential trading partners yesterday, which would have increased my options. Now I don't have them. Well, that is the result of recognizing this cult of statism. So once you look at it through that lens, you're going to have many more options, things like Indiegogo, things like GoFundMe, things like Kickstarter in a free society. Also, things will be much cheaper because you're going to have much more competition. You'll have more startup businesses. You one of things like minimum wages, which stop people from getting their foot in the door, getting on the job experience, and uh, being able to demand a higher wage at a later point in life, allowing them to save. And there will be an incentive to save because you won't have a central bank constantly deflating the currency. So there are no solutions, but if I'm going to be a vulnerable a person in a vulnerable situation, I'd much rather be in a free society than I would uh, under a uh, status system. Allow me to pile on. Um, I agree with all of that, but I'm going to do a slightly different twist on it. The reason so many people ask this question and the reason every anarchist and voluntarist has heard it a million billion times is because a huge number of people are concerned about helping the poor and about protecting the innocent and all that, which is kind of handy. If we lived in a society where nobody cared, it would be sort of horrible. Now, there are no guarantees, but the fact that so many people express that concern, and even the fact that so many people vote to have government address those problems, shows that a huge portion of society cares and wants to help. Now, when they try to help by way of government coercion, it creates a catastrophe in a zillion different ways. It, it, it robs the people who could have freely given it creates dependency in the recipients. Um, it, keeps, it creates an entitlement mentality. Neither side can feel good about it. Like the recipient, like they can't be grateful for someone else's generosity because it was stolen from somebody else. And the guy who got robbed can't feel good about having been generous because he just got robbed. <laughs> he didn't choose it. So it, it's one of those things where if people are uncertain of human nature and like, do people out there care enough? Or will we just leave each other starving in the gutter? If that was the case, nobody would ever run on a platform of vote for me and I'll help the poor. They do that knowing full well that a huge number of us want to help. Now, the way to help is give your money to someone you think <laughs> needs it when you want to. And the idea that that is somehow more difficult than getting robbed by a ruling class to waste most of it and then spend it inefficiently in the most corrupt manner possible, that that's somehow a better guarantee that people will be helped 
it's kind of just bonkers. And I do understand people's uncertainty because like, well, I don't get to control the other 8 billion people on the planet. So how do I know for sure they'll be nice? Well, you don't. But if you observe right now how much generosity and charity there is just in the U.S., for example, after all those people have been robbed of trillions of dollars, I'm not that worried about it because we've already seen after the robbery a huge amount of people caring and voluntarily helping the people who need it. You know, that it, is such a vitally important point absolutely. Because, uh, yeah. because so much of statism will constantly divide people of goodwill who otherwise would not be divided. I mean, it, sometimes the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witness get on my nerves with the door knocking and the Bible thumping. But when they say, Keith, you're going to burn in hell for all of eternity, and I say, okay, I'm going to take the risk, they walk away. They leave me. They, they say, look, this is going to be very bad, but we're still going to give you the choice. However, when it comes to things like funding schools or funding roads or funding the next military operation, giving the Bandarites money in Ukraine, well, that I'm not allowed to opt out of. I can risk burning in hell for all of eternity, but I can't risk Putin taking over the Donbass region because then bad things might happen. It's absolutely unbelievable, and it's uh, what Antonin Scalia said was that the welfare state has created donors without love and recipients without gratitude. And this is one of the main reasons why it's like, look, ideally, I would want to help these people, but they just spent the last four months of this campaign saying I should be caged if I don't chip in for fill in the blank, whatever the blank is. And we see the nicest people in the world who will say, look, you know, I'm very pro-life. I care about the unborn. And also, uh, I, I hope Israel flattens Gaza and kills every single one. I, there's no difference between civilians and militants in this operation. It's like, okay, only some sort of psychotic cult could get someone who's that nice to justify something that evil. So, uh, yes, uh, Larkin is uh, definitely correct with statism being a constant dividing force, making people far less charitable and kind than they otherwise would be. I I agree. And I think that does go to an important point that is kind of underlying the point that people like Tony make, which is the feeling that I think a lot of people have that, well, freedom, this freedom that you talk about, it doesn't, it not only doesn't, um, it mandate any particular action. It doesn't even tell us what to do with our lives. And therefore, I have to trust that other people will care about other people. But I know that I'm the only one who cares about everyone else, and everyone else is a greedy, horrible asshole who will just try to hoard as much as they can for themselves. And you're right, it does come down to that question about human nature. And human nature is not some unmutable, monolithic thing that can never be changed. It is, to some extent, shaped by the society we're living in. And when we're living in a society where it is normalized, that they'll give some sort of $700 token payoff to people who just had their entire lives destroyed in Maui, but now we'll spend billions and billions and billions and billions and billions arming Ukraine, for example, and oops, we gave you six billion extra dollars. Oh, well, well, hey, that kind of slap in the face is normalized. Then people do start to internalize that and believe that, it. okay, this is every man for himself and I just have to get as much as I can out of this deal as possible. And it turns people into assholes. So I think we cannot really understand what a free society would be like because, well, we've never lived in one. And yeah, do you trust in human nature to some extent, that we can actually be good people. And if you are a good person, Larkin, as you say, can we extend that out to to believe that other people can be good people as well? Anyway, okay, that's a good conversation opener. 
And we're going to get into some different topics here, but ones that I think will circle around some of the same issues. Let's go on to a some feedback that I received on one of my open threads that I had recently on the website. Um, you, Corporate Report member Viv Adelstaw, sorry for the mispronunciations, writes, You have been an inspiration to me and completely altered my view of the world. I don't agree with you on the idea of an anarchist system being better than a state-based system. Anarchy would lead to a new dark ages. Small Small government libertarianism is the best way forward, which is why my way of doing something is trying to support my local libertarian party. Um, perhaps we need to point out to all the BLM, Just Stop Oil, etc. woke wankers that they are in actuality cheerleaders for Big Brother like a bunch of useful idiots. Okay, <laughs> again, what do you make of that? Do you, you want to go first? Or you you have me? so much material on the Libertarian Party, I gotta let you start this one. <laughs> start this one. <laughs> you, can, you can innocently sit in the background for a moment. I'm going to all the way be as, as, as rude as I sometimes am. When communists say, it's a brilliant idea, it's just never worked anywhere in the world in the history of mankind, most of us point at that and go, duh, that's ridiculous. When minarchists say the exact same thing, and not only has it never worked anywhere in the world at any point in history, but it literally, the best attempt ever at a limited servant government created the biggest authoritarian empire the world has ever known. How many times does an idea have to completely and utterly fail when applied to reality before people stop thinking it's a good idea? The, uh, and by the way, I was in that camp. I was absolutely libertarian, constitutionalist, that sort of slant flavor of statism, feels like it was 100,000 years ago, but that was the flavor of statism that I was in. I wanted government to basically be a big, all-powerful thing that made sure that the things I care about would happen, defending the innocent and and so on and so forth. And the, the emotional crutch that that gives people to think there is this big, powerful thing, don't worry, you don't have to do it yourself. You don't have to act as a grown-up and then see what other people do. You can have this all-powerful thing to elect that will do your libertarian ideal thing, even though it won't. And it never has and it never will because the moment you create a ruling class, it doesn't give a crap what you wanted it to do. And literally all of human history screams that message in the face of everybody across the entire political spectrum, right, left, libertarian, communist, fat, whatever, whatever you wanted government to do, the moment you put it above yourself, the moment you imagined it to have authority, why would it give a crap what you want? It won't. It doesn't. Ever. And then it becomes the biggest thief in the world, and you're like, that's not what we wanted you to do. Well, maybe you shouldn't have put him on a throne. Instead, you should act like grown-ups and find your fellow grown-ups who will do the things as mere mortal people that you want done, whether it's taking care of the poor, like we were just talking about, or defending against whether it's local nasty aggressors or foreign nasty aggressors, to hope that a magic superhuman entity is going to show up and be the all-powerful good guy is already ridiculous just conceptually. But to think that government is ever going to be that when we have how many thousand years of evidence 
that not only shows, oh, it isn't an all-powerful good guy. It is the biggest thief and thug and terrorist and murderer in the history of the world with no competition. Like second place is a bazillion miles behind. Why would you try that heinously destructive idea again, hoping that for some reason all those power-happy people are going to suddenly give a crap what you want? and do the good intentions that you hoped they were going to do of protect the innocent and blah, blah, blah. And I mean, I'm, I'm being critical here of the former me just as much as anybody else. Why on earth did I ever think that somehow creating an authoritarian ruling class was going to end up like helping the world in the way I wished it was? I, it wasn't going to be me up there. I'm not on the throne. And the moment you put anybody else there... They don't give a shit what you want anymore. This definitely gets to the question of whether people see uh, – um, no, not whether they see, whether they understand that the state, far from being a neutral tool which can be used for good or bad, literally is one group of people claiming the right to initiate violence against peaceful people. It necessarily is something that we would recognize as illegitimate if any other organization did so. That's why the state legally has the right to coerce the citizenry, and if the citizenry attempts to coerce the state, you are literally a terrorist by their own definition. So it's important to get to the root of what a state actually is because you can always say there was a popular tweet going around. It's like, People say that socialism's failed, but that's like saying, look, I screwed up the souffle. doesn't mean you should never try making souffle again. It means you should try harder. And if you look at government as a neutral tool, well, then it's much like the history of flight. People tried to fly for thousands of years, and eventually the Wright brothers uh, were able to get it down. So maybe we should do the same thing with statism. Until people have a genuine understanding of what this actually is that we're actually opposing, uh, then I don't think uh, you're ever going to get to the root of the issue. And the main uh, issue here is that anything that can be produced, whether it's a good like a printer, whether it's a service like you know food delivery or a service like protecting your person and property, it's far better achieved with a system that embraces voluntarily funded competition so you can get, disassociate with bad actors who develop a bad reputation or just don't meet consumer demand. Or you could have a coercively funded monopoly. So because the state necessarily gets its money in voluntarily and is able to interact with people uh, outside of this you know, constant cost-benefit analysis that we do, that it might be beneficial, but once it stops being beneficial, then we can disassociate with it. So because it necessarily is a coercively funded monopoly, it is a fool's errand. Lou Rockwell gave a uh, famous speech at a uh, Mises Institute uh, organization. I think it was something titled, like, Can Anarcho-Capitalism Work? And he goes, well, let's compare it to uh, minarchism. So in order to get to minarchism, here's, uh, here's all we have to do. Explain why agricultural subsidies are bad, then the education system, then the healthcare system, then the energy sector, then World War One, then the Second World War, then the coming war with Russia, China, and potentially Iran. You know, we got to explain all these things to people to get them to understand this. Or we could simply tell them, hey, that thing you learned in kindergarten about don't hit, don't steal, 
don't initiate aggression, but you have the right to defend yourself. Take that and don't have any double standards for politicians. So not only is it the moral thing to do, not only is it economically efficient because you're dealing with uh, competition and freedom of disassociation with people who don't uh, produce value, but it's also far more realistic than minarchism because once there's a state, it's like a bat signal for the Henry Kissingers, the big New Brzezinski's, and Madeleine Albright's to come occupy it and to wreak havoc on people who they otherwise would uh, would not be able to wreak havoc on. We can see terrible uh, things done by you know, people like Andrew Carnegie, John D. Rockefeller certainly had uh, some uh, terrible ideas, but at least there was a minimal state for them to occupy. Of course, things like the Rockefeller Foundation and the Carnegie Foundation mainly use the state as the operation to uh, enforce a lot of their uh, tyranny. But the goal is we're going to have bad people in any society. The question is, should there be a state which they can occupy, or should we not have any double standards for people or groups within society that don't allow them to enact their evil on such a larger scale? How many people could private citizen Mao or private citizen Pol Pot have really killed? I think it's minuscule. So yes, anarchism uh, is difficult to achieve, but not nearly as difficult as minarchism. You know, I... Uh, I've often compared the state to a trough that uh, that attracts all the pigs, the Kissingers, and what have you. But the idea of the state as a bat signal, <laughs> getting the Kissinger clan to come <laughs> come calling, it's is probably a new metaphor that I'll pick up on. <laughs> Sorry, Larkin, go ahead. <laughs> if I can throw in a really short proof of something I often say, which is by its very nature, all government or authority can add to society is immoral violence. And it's a pretty dang easy thing to prove if you actually pause to think about it. Do you need a special badge or a politician scribble or an office of authority to defend an innocent person from attacker? No. Do you need special permission and authority to, like, help the poor? No. The only thing you ever need authority for is permission to do something that everybody would say, that's bad, if you didn't have that permission. Which literally means all the notion of authority does is give some people permission to do evil stuff and pretend it isn't evil. So to anyone saying, well, I think we need a minimal government, tell me what problems could be better solved by adding more immoral violence to society. And if you can't, stop suggesting that as a solution. Okay, well, I guess I'm in the position of devil's advocate here to push back and to provide a voice for some of these people. So I would say, Larkin, your, I think, very correct observation that, I mean, look throughout human history and you cannot find an example of the perfectly contained minarchist government ever, you know, really coming to fruition. But I'm sure there are people in the audience who would say, well, there's never been an anarchist society that's thriven throughout human history, and there never will be, because that doesn't comport with human nature. What would you say to that? Even though there are examples here and there to one degree or another, it's, it's important to focus on the fact that if something works conceptually, but people haven't, like, a country without slavery wasn't tried for a century. Like slavery was the norm all over the world for centuries and centuries and centuries. Now, if you ask people here, you know, here and now, did that make slavery a good idea? What would you say to the argument of, we have to have slavery because show me one country that doesn't have it. I'm pretty sure everybody would now go, that didn't make it okay. Yeah, it doesn't make it okay. 
That's why the moral principle is what matters. Cheering for immoral violence doesn't make it okay, even if you're not sure how things would work without immoral violence, even if you've never seen an example of it before. So even though there have been like patches throughout hu human history that didn't really have ruling classes, to me, that's completely secondary, unless you want to actually say, we better bring back slavery, because if not, who will pick the cotton? Then arguing, well, I haven't seen it before, does that make bad into good? And that's why the moral question to me is the only thing that matters. Like, if you're in slave days saying slavery has to end and somebody says, well, what about the cotton industry? The only moral sane answer is, I don't really give a crap. We can worry about that after the fact. But ending the obvious evil and moral violence matters more than whether your imagination can understand what things will look like when that's gone. It certainly goes to show the extent to which people are able to be comfortable with injustice uh, regarding the state in areas they never would be otherwise. Imagine asking someone, do you think uh, murder and rape and kidnapping is morally justified? And, and their response was, I don't think we'll ever see a society without those. Oh, okay. But you, what, what is it that you advocate, you know, before I invite you over to my house for dinner, before I let you meet my kids, before we hang out together, are those things moral or immoral? And they go, I'd, Seven billion people in the world. I don't know if that's achievable realistically, as opposed to saying unequivocally no, that it's one person claiming ownership over someone else, whether it's theft, whether it's slavery, whether it's kidnapping. Those central issues are violations of self-ownership, and people can't seem to see this clearly because they have this double standard for the uh, for the state. So as far as uh, how can we judge if there's never actually been an anarchist society? What you can do is look at the degrees of freedom which certain societies have and see if there's a pattern between more free countries being more prosperous than less free countries. So usually the Fraser Institute will have a freedom index, and you can see that the most free countries are the wealthiest. No surprise. You can take places like Hong Kong and North Korea. Those are usually the extremes. Sometimes Singapore and North Korea are the absolute extremes. And even when you take a very racially similar population like the Korean Peninsula and divide it between the North and South, you see that the more free people are, the more opportunities they have to trade with people, the more that they can engage in social cooperation, and the more mutually beneficial voluntary exchanges are made, which make people happier, wealthier, and give them more opportunities to enjoy life. We saw the same thing with East Germany and West Germany. Niall Ferguson makes the point that uh, there was a great experiment in the 20th century with the Chinese people inside and outside the republic. The few, uh, the small percentage of Chinese outside the republic created more wealth than all of the Chinese uh, that were still remaining within the People's Republic combined. So, that this is another example of the more freedom people have, the more opportunities they have to trade and make mutually beneficial exchanges, which make them better off than they otherwise would be. So it's not do we have it or do we not? It's the degrees of freedom that you have. More private property, the more free exchange, the better off you are. All right, guys, I think I think we've probably only upset about 75% of the audience so far, but this is an anarchist conversation, so let's go for the other 24.9999% and get into some really touchy stuff. So, uh, as people who've been following the Corbett Report know, recently I've 
talked a little bit about borders and immigration and the right to travel, etc., and how that is being taken away through the Great Travel Reset. And don't worry, they're going to solve the border problem for you. Digital IDs for everyone. Yay, travel ban, travel ban. Well, as you can no doubt tell, there are some people with some very particular takes on that subject that uh, differ from mine. Um, So let's get into some of them. For example, some of the feedback I've gotten from some of my recent coverage of this. For example, my recent conversation with Dr. Daniela Ganser, um, I had this feedback from H. Pete, who wrote, Also, I am not sure why Dr. Ganser sees nationalism as an evil. Nationalism could be exploited and has been exploited by lying warmongers and sneaky, greedy bankers. But why? what is he proposing instead? What social construct is a workable alternative to globalism and cosmopolitanism? By the way, what are the anarchists or voluntarists proposing? Is nationalism a bad thing? Or, on the border crisis, uh, I had this feedback from Ultra Maga Taco. <laughs> If that is your real name. I get that we have to avoid the surveillance state as much as possible, but there's a vast difference between national borders and local borders. Please comment on distinguishing the difference between national borders and local borders of the surveillance state and how we can have one while avoiding the other. And this from Bill Pritting, who writes... Have you always been an Ian Davis-type anti-government anarchist? <laughs> Congratulations, Ian. I don't know how you've become the the example of anarchism, but <laughs> good on you. I, I hope someday people will go, have you always been a James Corbett-type anarchist? Anyway, Trump and his supporters want legal immigration. The Trump wall restricts unmitigated illegal trespassing and forces those who want to immigrate to the USA to go through the process to immigrate legally. Trump's border wall is completely different from the globalist, fascist oligarchy's goal of herding all humanity into 15-minute smart cities, as detailed in the Wildlands Project. All right, guys, what do you have to say about this? May I? (laughs) There's three main things to hit. There are three different themes. First of all, when people argue the thing of nationalism versus globalism, they're literally arguing over how big the slave plantation should be. There shouldn't be a slave plantation. And I know that sort of underlying that is the notion that, well, in the U.S., we have a bunch of freedoms that we don't think we'd have on a globe, under a global ruling class. And you may be right about that. The problem is the lack of freedom. It isn't the size of the plantation. So when people are cheering for nationalism, they're cheering for authoritarian domination just of a certain flavor and of a certain size as if that's better in principle. Now, in practical terms, it might be if this particular nation has currently a little bit more relative freedom than maybe global parasites would want. But in principle, globalism and nationalism are two flavors of immoral authoritarian domination. They both suck in principle. Um, The difference between national borders and private borders is that national borders are never legitimate. Politicians don't own gigantic tracts of land because they say so. And those two are completely incompatible. And it's really weird how often conservatives are like, we need rules. Okay, so you're telling me I don't get to decide who can be on my property, right? Because you're telling me that the politicians claiming ownership of this gigantic half a continent overrules my ability to say, well, maybe I want that friend of mine from Mexico to visit. Well, he can't. Not without the permission of the... Okay, so you're suddenly a collectivist authoritarian who doesn't believe in private property. 
And the, the weird thing is that they don't recognize that the moment you say, well, national borders are just like private property borders, you're literally admitting that you think the politicians own everyone and everything within this gigantic area known as the country and that their wishes outrank the wishes of the owners of every single bit of private property within that. Because none of us can say, well, I want to trade with that guy. You have this embargo. I want to trade with the guy in China. Well, you can't. Well, I want my friend from Mexico to visit. Well, he can't. Then you don't believe in individual freedom at all. And instead, you believe in ownership and borders that have no legitimacy at all. It was just some politicians saying, yeah, this half a continent, it's ours. Okay. And your loyalty to that, to your own detriment, it's really weird to pretend that that's the pro-freedom position. And they're like, well, we might have even less freedom without that. <laughs> it's like, okay. And they, they'll, they, you know, the Trumpites will cheer for tariffs. Yay, tax those foreigners. All you did was just cheer for him to tax Americans doing business with other places. You just cheered for somebody robbing your fellow Americans while thinking it's pro-freedom. And when you cheer for border stuff, all you're cheering for is that the ruling class can tell you where you can go. The fact that you hope they will use that restriction on other people in a way that will serve you, you're still reinforcing the notion. And I came back from Mexico recently, had to go through the fascist checkpoint. Guess what? The Mexicans didn't really care. It was the U.S., law enforcers who made us drive around in circles and scanning our car. And that's the fascist BS that a bunch of Americans are cheering for, thinking it has something to do with freedom. And lastly, I'll say, when you make a distinction between legal and illegal immigration, that doesn't mean anything. Legal just means a bunch of political crooks gave their permission. There's nothing moral about that. There's nothing legitimate about that. It means absolutely nothing. To make that distinction is to say that the opinion of politicians matters more to you than morality and how you treat your fellow man. Yeah, Larkin, can you believe that uh, people used to advocate things like Jim Crow laws? I mean, judging people based on an arbitrary accident of birth. Who could ever come up with such a thing? Also, those goddamn Mexicans better not cross that motherfucking line because they were born there and not born here. My gosh, is it difficult to comprehend. What they say is that they'll be like, oh my gosh, look at this. Whites only. This apartheid South Africa. How could anyone be so inhumane? Well, Jim Crow laws arguably were not as bad as immigration laws because at least there were some job opportunities available under Jim Crow. At least you could have some access to the country and its facilities. With immigration, you're actually far worse off. And this is an argument that uh, Brian Kaplan made in his book, uh, The Science and Ethics of Immigration. So very often the question is not what should be done. We should be safe from the foreigners. The question is who's going to decide? And once you've given one group a monopoly on violence, well, they get to interpret what it means to keep you safe from the immigrants. So that could mean anything from, well, we'll have some people patrolling and making sure that uh, there's no human trafficking going on. Or it could mean literal digital ID. We know where you are at all times and you can't make any exchanges with someone unless you get Joe Biden's stamp of approval. A dementia patient telling 300 million strangers whether or not they have the right to trade and cooperate with the 6.7 other billion human beings on planet Earth. Absolutely ridiculous. When it comes to nationalism, I see nothing wrong with nationalism when defined as 
cultural connection and cultural continuity frequently mediated by language and familial connections. Nothing wrong with this. The problem is the frequent implication when it's embraced by politicians. People think of the nation as the flag. They pledge allegiance to the flag, associate the flag with the status regime. So because it's frequently used as an unjust method of power is why uh, I think it uh, deserves uh, a, a great deal of criticism. In the same way, there's nothing wrong with, you know, if you have a bunch of friends, you want to make sure they're generally treated equally. But that principle is sometimes confiscated and justified as DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And this should be mandatory and implemented by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. So good ideas can be co-opted. So the question is not what is happening, but who is going to decide what happens and how it's going to be executed. These judges and politicians and soldiers have no incentive to make sure that it's interpreted in such a way to mean we're going to maximize freedom and just stop the evil 9-11 terrorists from crossing the Canadian border. They have no incentive to do so, and they have every uh, incentive to basically make sure that uh, there's a large-scale intimidation so the population is less likely to resist. I mean – if you just look at January 6th, what they called the terrorist insurrection, that is something that they thought was so far out that it justifies. Just uh, the other day, they uh, swatted a guy's house who was uh, involved in January 6th. You can't even walk into the Capitol building of the government that claims to represent you, and you think, well, but they're going to interpret immigration law in such a way that will allow for freedom to maximize absolutely ridiculous, very, very important thing. Not what is to be done, but who is to decide. I think there's a really important thing. I'll, I'll throw it in as quick as I can. Having principles has a downside, which is that you don't get to violently control the rest of the world in whatever way you think serves your interests. The upside is other people don't get to do that to you either. And I use the example of if I live in a neighborhood and all my neighbors are they're starting to sell to people who speak a different language and come from a different culture and, and so on and so forth, my own preference is, and this is true of almost everybody in the world, is to be around people I have a lot in common with. We speak same language, have same general values and gem general culture. And so, you know, we have a lot in common. It's easy to communicate and all that. Does that mean that I have the right to go to my neighbors and go, you're not going to sell to that guy because he's not quite as similar to me as I'd like him to be? No, I don't own their houses. They own their houses. And it may come that that freedom results in, well, now I have so many neighbors here that I don't even know their language. Maybe I'll move somewhere else. The upside to recognizing that principle and the principle that means sometimes your interests won't win out. You won't get everything you want. The upside of that is when you're in a civilization that understands that and accepts it, it means they're not going to use the violence against you because they decide that your beliefs aren't quite in line with theirs enough. So they're going to kick you off the continent, not just off their property, which everybody has the right to do for any reason they want. No, they're going to use violence to say, you don't get to be in this town or this country or this continent because we all collectively decided. And it doesn't matter if you know people here and or you get along with a bunch of them. No, we as the collective will force our will on you. So the people falling for the temptation of, don't you want to use government to serve your interests? Guess what? It's always going to be used against your interests the next stinking day. So yeah, it's more worth it to have the principle and realize, yeah, sometimes my interests won't be served by other people being free. 
But in the long run, your interests are served a whole lot less by a giant totalitarian state that does whatever the hell it wants to anybody, including you. You know, the thing, the thing that is so baffling to me about the ultra-mega tacos in the crowd is that I think they are perfectly fine with the idea that Trump owns the United States and all of its occupants and can decide anything he wants. This is legal immigration. This is illegal because he's our guy and he's doing our thing. But, oh my God, Biden is in power now. Oh my God, now he has the power to... And he, with a stroke of his pen, because he's this God emperor, he can make it legal for anyone to come in for any reason or he can decide a million Mexicans need to migrate more. Oh my god, no! How did he get this power? That's the thing that really baffles me, is that people are explicitly, they're saying, my worst enemy can, as long as he wins the selection, the, the vote fraud selection, well, he can take all of this power and use it against me. Signed, sealed, and delivered. Ultra Mega Taco. I, it's just, it's baffling to me that people don't have the uh, imagination to understand how this is going to play out. And then, you, you uh, how about those people who would look at apartheid South Africa or the Jim Crow laws and say, good! Yay, we need more of that. What then the literal neo-Nazi white nationalists who say, yeah, you know, get rid of all those foreigners and what what have you. Well, you're still saying that in this in this scenario, you cannot form a community of like-minded people. You buy some parcel of land and this is our land and no one else can come in unless we give approval. You're giving that right away by saying, okay, it's now Washington, D.C. can decide. And oh my God, they've decided that we can't have our our, our pure ethno-nationalist state or whatever you have or whatever you want. That the, You are giving this power to someone else. And the idea that this is just going to be used in your interest is it's so baffling. It's so bizarre to me that people don't understand how this is being. Anyway, another incredibly important part of this, nation-state is not nation. Nationalism is not nation-state. America is not, uh, is not your nation. It is, a, it is a state. It is the United States of America, Inc., in Washington, D.C. And people have become so wrapped up in flag, government nation, whatever, it's all the same thing, that I think they can't separate these things out. So yes, you can be a nationalist, but not be in favor of the state. And I don't understand how people can't separate those concepts in their mind. Anyway, that's what comes to my mind. Anything else on this before we leave this undoubtedly very controversial topic? Oh, what was I just thinking? Nope, I lost it. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. All right. Okay. Um, we could go on uh, uh, like this for hours, <laughs> but maybe maybe we'll wrap it up soon. Uh, I have several more questions, but uh, one more that I want to get to before we wrap it up um, that I think is important, because interestingly enough, I do have at least one communist member of my website who does write from time to time, generally from that perspective. And, uh, well, he has things to say about voluntarism slash anarchism. I'm referring to M.I.K., Mick, I don't know if that's an abbreviation, an acronym, or a name. But anyway, um, he writes, uh, Voluntarism slash anarchism are not the same thing. Voluntarism is for those ones who cannot cope with inherent redness of anarchism, and they need reframing and watering down the basics. Uh, and he's referring to a conversation I had with Richard Cox of Deep State Consciousness uh, Podcast. He says, Richard uses morality in argumentation, but very superficially. 
For him, it's simple morality known to any child, i.e. the voluntarist principles of non-aggression, etc. It's supposedly so obvious it needs no further argumentation. I doubt he expanded on the topic in the book, which to me suggests that Mick hasn't actually read his book. So maybe you want to read his actual book before you start commenting on <laughs> Richard Cox's philosophy. Anyway, well, on this point, he is very wrong. There is no simple morality. It might appear simple, maybe because majority of our the majority of our moral decisions are made on autopilot and are mostly okay. If you dive into moral slash ethical problems, you will find out there is nothing simple. And also the extent to which morality has been skewed during various developments of civilization. Morality in anarchy and its guiding principles of ethics will be considerably different than the ones today, mostly based in Christianity. It's inevitable. I completely agree that there is nothing simple about morality, which is why the last sort of system you'd want to have is a monopoly state, which interprets morality unilaterally. So the question is whether anarchism is inherently red, meaning a system of no rulers, uh, archons being the rulers uh, from the Greek word uh, anarchy. So if we define communism, as Marx and Engels did, as the abolition of private property, socialism as the institutionalized aggression against private property, and capitalism as a social system based on the explicit recognition of private property and non-aggressive contractual exchanges between consenting adults, then we immediately see that capitalism is – and uh, free markets, rather – are much more compatible with anarchism. In fact, communism is incompatible with anarchism because in abolishing private property – you do not allow people to engage in mutually beneficial contracts that they feel are in their best interest because there's such an alleged power differential that the communist has a right to violently stop this voluntary exchange from taking place, which is like me saying men can't date women just because there's a power differential and the, it's not – the woman has to pay 50 percent of the time for all the meals. She has to open half the doors or else it's exploitation, and a stay-at-home mom is confiscating her husband's surplus labor value. She needs to go to work as well. Well, uh, actually, people have the right to make these exchanges. That's fully free market. That's fully anarchist. But communism cannot be consistent with anarchism for that fundamental reason because it doesn't recognize people's right to engage in contractual exchanges. Uh, so uh, I believe I've answered both questions. The redness of anarchism and the complexity of morality is the very reason you don't want a monopoly state. You want voluntarily funded competing agencies and organizations in hopes of achieving this very complex issue. The the first thing I always ask anybody who identifies as an anarcho-communist or anarcho-socialist is, let's say there are some of us, and there will be, and I'm one of them, who are going to be over here and we want to do the private property and, and voluntary trade thing. Are you going to let us? If the answer is yes, cool, we're going to get along fine. Your system is still going to fall apart because collectivists... Communist economics just doesn't fit and doesn't work, but I'm not going to go violently interfere with it. You can learn yourself how cause and effect actually happen. If you're saying, no, you can't do that, which I think is the honest answer to most communists, why are you pretending to be an anarchist? It's like, there will be no ruling class, and all resources and all trade and all ownership of everything will be controlled by these ideas. And the thing doing the controlling isn't government because, no, it's a central committee of the, okay, so you stuck a different name upon on authoritarian domination. 
It's the same stinking thing. The, the only other thing I'd throw in when he talks about, oh, morality is complex. There are gray areas and there are debatable things and stuff. A bunch of the basics we all agree on. Communists are never, ever, ever, ever honest about their own moral code. And I made a video about this. And if you want to be offended, be offended. I don't really care. They have to do all sorts of tap dances to make up non-existent distinctions. One being private property versus personal property. There is no rational sane way to make that distinction. What it really means is the stuff I have that I don't want you to steal, the stuff you have that I want to steal. That is the only difference. They call it private property when they want to be able to steal it. They call it personal property when they don't want you to st steal it from them. There's no rational or sane or logical distinction between the two. And, and when I walk them through it, okay, if I do this, is that okay? If I do this, that's okay. They, they get to the point where they're stumbling all over the place because they can't draw any line of anything. Whereas voluntarists can say, if you made it, it's yours. If you voluntarily trade with somebody else, that's fine. If you use fraud or coercion, that's not fine. Like, that's pretty simple. They have to complicate the hell out of things. Uh, another one is means of production. That doesn't mean anything. These are the means of production. So is a laptop. So is a factory. So is 80 billion other things. At what point do you suddenly have the right to steal it because you're the workers seizing the means of production? They can never define it because there is no moral concept. There is no rational distinction. Again, it's just the things they want to be able to steal versus the things they don't want stolen from them. And the fact that they can never even define it when I give an example of two people with one thing. Like, this guy made a bow and arrow, this guy wants some fish, is he allowed to give it to him in exchange for some of the fish? Already, like, is that the means of production? Like, he says, you can borrow my bow, but I get half of what you catch from it. Is he an evil capitalist oppressor? Because, uh, oppressor? because you have means of production combined with labor, this guy's profiting just because he owned the thing that he made. They can't even define, they can't even agree with each other on the situation of two people with one thing, and yet they think their brilliant idea will peacefully manage everything on the planet as divided among everyone on the planet. Just no, you're making excuses for being a thieving thug and pretending it's a philosophy. There is something incredible about a philosophy that almost necessarily penalizes producers and uh, attempts to uplift parasites or anyone who wants to engage in non-consensual interactions. I think the heart of communism or uh, any of uh, these ideals is met with uh, – the, the concept is referred to as the iron law of oligarchy, meaning that any time people organize, some people will stand out much more than others. In the NBA, roughly 1% of the players sell 99% of the jerseys. What percentage of people or comedians do you think are as funny as like Chris Rock and Jerry Seinfeld? What percentage of people can uh, organize a society in such an efficient way as someone like Lee Kuan Yew? You also see it in the political sector. Even someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has more power and institutional influence than 99.9% of her constituents ever will. Anytime people organize, some people are really going to shine out. So this genius comes in many forms, and it also applies to management structures. So when you're attempting to produce things like airplanes, computers, houses, printers, not everyone has an equal amount 
of ideas or productive ideas, rather. So it's important that we sort of delegate decision-making and allow some people to have much more power than others. The classic examples that uh, McKells uses, the founder of uh, this Iron Law of Oligarchy Ideas, say that you have a union who's against the bourgeoisie, and you form the union, so uh, not everyone wants to go to the union meeting. Not everyone has great ideas about what the union should do. Not everyone will vocalize those ideas. Not everyone's ideas are equally productive, and not that many people are going to ambitiously uh, give their ideas to the union and attempt to persuade them. So you end up with Jimmy Hoffa and three friends running the union for 10,000 people. So this iron law of oligarchy is why communism is such a fool's errand, uh, just hating people who are elites and not distinguishing between coercive elites and natural elites is why uh, communism is incorrect. Don't worry, guys. The dictatorship of the proletariat is just an intermediary stage. And then the state will melt away after they've sorted out what is personal and what is private property and who can steal what. And hey, they're all much, much richer than everyone else. But whatever. It'll work out next time, guys. Anyway, okay. <laughs> well, I think we have upset pretty much everyone in the audience on some level today. And that's uh, as you say, Larkin, yay, thumbs up. I think that's to the good. Uh, if you have not been challenged in some of your ideas today, then either you're already a voluntarist, thank you, great, awesome, but if not, maybe you want to start thinking about these things in a deeper manner. And unlike the people who will comment on other people's books without reading them, I hope you're not one of those people out there in the audience, so I hope that uh, you will have a more informed uh, pr uh, view of these people's perspective if you actually read their books. For example, Larkin Rose's Most Dangerous Superstition, or, of course, the Voluntarist Handbook by, uh, well, organized by Keith Knight, but that we've talked about again on the program before, so I'll direct people back to those previous conversations. Also, Larkin Rose, of course, Jones Plantation film, which we talked about before, yeah, wearing the, sporting the t-shirt, looking good, um, which I believe is available for sale. Anyway, let's find out. Larkin, what are some of the developments in the Jones Plantation film front? Yeah, jonesplantationfilm.com is where people can still buy it. We are planning on getting it on a bunch of streaming services shortly. Uh, there's only a few of us on our team, so I don't know how quickly that'll happen. Also, the DVD should be out soon for those old people like me who like to have a physical thing. Um... But uh, yeah, that's that's what's up with that. Awesome. JonesPlantationFilm.com. Of course, that link will be in the show notes for people. If you haven't checked it out yet, or if you want to get the gift, um, gift it to a friend or um, someone in your life. Um, Keith Knight. Keith Knight, don't tread on anyone. Always doing incredible work. And recently I linked up a very, very interesting conversation that you had with that man from the Young Turks, whose name I can never remember how to pronounce properly because I don't watch the Young Turks. But anyway, good on you for that conversation. It's a great way to cross the, the bridge and connect uh, connect the bridge, cross the chasm. What am I trying to say? Anyway, you know what I mean. Reaching out to people who aren't already in the choir, as it were. And uh, I think you probably got some new uh, attention from an uh, interview like that. Uh, tell us what else you're up to these days. So, first of all, his name is Jenk Uger, you. and you better start showing some respect because he just declared that he's running for president as the first Turkish American, and he gave a 45-minute interview to Anna Kasparian explaining his justification. So, uh, I, I need you to retract everything you just said. Oh. If people want to check out uh, my work, I got 
quite a few videos all at libertarianinstitute.org. I'm at like 907 now. However, uh, if you give people 907 things, uh, they're not going to watch any of them. If there's one thing I would like people to check out, it's a speech that I gave in New York. It's titled the state is the health of war. I try to make the case that wars are much more likely to occur when there is a state apparatus because they have the ability to tax, fund the operation coercively. They have the ability to print money through a central bank. They have compulsory education to gain the allegiance of the population. They often have military conscription and force people to fight in these wars, making them more likely to occur than they otherwise would. And they have a legal double standard, which allows them to murder people and sometimes even get a Nobel Peace Prize, never fearing that they will actually face repercussions. So if there's one thing to check out, I think it's vitally important. They're actively uh, pushing for war with China over Taiwan, war with Russia over the Donbass region, and now war with Iran, unfortunately. Even idiots like Bill Maher have called Iran, China, and Russia the axis of evil. So seeing uh, this speech, I think, is the best way I can contribute to hopefully avoiding a third uh, world war conflict. Excellent. Important stuff. And uh, guys, I think I think that does it. I think we've, uh, yeah, I think we've solved every problem in the world. Freedom's the answer. What's the question? I think no one will have any further, well, maybe some people will have some further questions and comments on this. And if so, please submit them. Of course, Corporate Report members always invited to log into CorporateReport.com. Leave your questions and comments in, uh, in the comment section of this conversation. And hopefully we can have you guys back on in the future to discuss these issues at more length. As I say, we could talk about this for days. But we don't have days, so we'll wrap it up here. Keith Larkin, thank you so much for your time. Anytime, James. Thank you. Thank Anytime. you.